Love getting your Legend of the Five Rings podcast fix? Head to patreon.com slash strangeassembly to find out how you can support the show. This is Strange Assembly episode 176, Thunderous Acclaim. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can check us out on the web at www.strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Today, we are going to be talking about the latest Legend of the Five Rings expansion, Thunderous Acclaim. And in this case, the we is myself and, uh, if I may so dub you, the man who saved 20 festivals with his pen, Chris Medico. I guess you can call it that. Happy to be here. <laughs> and you are on the PDT for Legend of the Five Rings, as we, we heard from Brian Reese uh, a couple episodes ago. Yep. And do you want to do any humble bragging about teaching people how to beat up on Mantis Sheikah decks before we go on to Thunder's Acclaim? Or? You guys kind of put it out on the website well enough on the strangeassembly.com was... Uh, all the stats kind of do show it helped a little bit, but it, it's such a small data set that you can't really say either way whether it was the article's fault or not. But it was more of just a, well, there's a lot of things that decks can do to, to beat this. I'm seeing some of them. I'm not seeing all of them. Let's let's break it down, go a little bit more into specific details so people just have a general idea what to do. Uh, yeah, so if you, if you really want to get technical about it, we have a data set of one, right? You wrote one article, and then there was a before and after, and correlation may not be causation, but uh, <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I guess I could introduce you as Chris Medico, the man who everyone says saved 20 festivals, but really, do we know that? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, an expose <laughs> article. <laughs> All right, but we are here to talk about Thunderous Acclaim. I'll Give the the same warning note that I, I do on all of our set review things anymore, which is no, I, I know there are some people out there who like them, but we are not going to go card by card over every single thing. Maybe we could do that if, if we uh, did something together with a colon informant and uh, talked about draft, which is what some of the cards I, I kind of think are more aimed at. So, and they've talked about draft on their, their website. But, let's see, Thunderous Acclaim... There are earth-shaking events going on in Rokugan. There is a new emperor. There's Kanpeki being unleashed. But uh, if we want to talk about sheer card volume in this set, it seems like it's spotlight time for the peasants of Rokugan and their Ashigaru deck. Yeah, exactly. There's a, a very specific sensei within the set that focuses on the Ashigaru theme, and that's a Hikahime sensei. And along with that are a, a sizable number of Ashgaru personalities and farms that deal with the Ashgaru trait. Often we have a comparison point for where a clan or a theme is going to go with new additions, but Ashigaru is uh, brand new for this time around. Past iterations of Ashigaru and farms have been had, had quite an impact on the tournament scene in years past. Do you think that Ashigaru this time around are going to make a difference they definitely do have the swarm capabilities like they would have in the past um, a lot of the the stronger power cards that dealt with the ashigaru are more of the the follower based ones like uh 
Family Dojo was a big one that wasn't technically part of the Ashigaru theme, but really made the farm scheme plus the, the small followers really tick in early Ivory Edition, so much so that they had to uh, kind of tone down a little bit with through the bands that they had earlier in that season. But uh, this one, since the, the personalities themselves that you create have zero force, it kind of forces you into a situation where you have to kind of get your force from elsewhere, and, and that means that your your deck is a little more split in its focus versus just kind of spitting out tons of force and taking provinces with it. Yes, no no personalities with one force, no personalities you get plus one force for every single Ashigaru card you have on the table. That would probably be a little bonkers in, in this mm-hmm. format. They definitely do have their synergies, though, because a couple of the personalities really shine when you have a good amount of the Ashigaru conscripts, which are the, the tokens that are created are called. So yeah. you can you can kind of put them together, but there's nothing quite there as of yet to really take advantage of that. Yeah, there's a lot of the Ashigaru personalities, right, or of the bow any number of your Ashigaru conscripts to do a ranged attack, to do a fear effect, to give somebody a force penalty. Mm-hmm. Now, of all of the Ashigaru slash farm cards, the one that, to me at least, seemed to have the most immediate potential outside of the Ashigaru themselves are the Ashigaru farmland, sort of rich coffers on steroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ashigaru farmland, it's, it's tough because it is a 3-for-3 three three holding, so... Unless you're going for the the three gold and the one gold split gold scheme that a lot of people are starting to run now, it, it's tough to fit in. But it is definitely a strong ability because that is an awful lot of gold that that one holding can produce when you go second. That's only gonna kick in in the appropriate deck. But yeah, I, I remember getting just drowned by the gold of a of a unicorn opponent who just had all of the the stuff that was already out there. To, to straighten on your opponent's turn and just attaching and attaching over and over again, it's another possible cog in that in that sort of machine or, or a different option. Yeah, because uh, Temple of the Heavenly Crab, which is pretty comparable to this, saw a lot of play, and it basically is functionally the same in a lot of cases to Ashgar Farmland because it's a 3-for-2 equivalent because you have to invest it to get the gold cost up to 3. So. Yeah. So yeah, that that is one of the new sensei. Hikahime sensei is an all clan sensei. There are also three sensei that work with uh, one or more specific clans. The first uh, was Hira sensei. Now I've been waiting to be able to make some sort of event-based deck for a long time. Unfortunately, for story reasons, this one is unfortunately for me at least, uh, this one is Crane, Phoenix, Mantis. Now, I've seen a lot of negative commentary on the power level of Hira Sensei. It, it seemed to me that, especially with Coastal Lanes being pretty solid and pushing your deck size up anyway, that you'd have some room to put in some decent events and still maintain an appropriate balance of personalities and holdings and, and card flow. Do you think that there's some tourney potential for Hira Sensei, or do you go with uh, uh, the naysayers who think he's destined for coasterhood? I think there's definitely some potential there. One of the issues that's been cropping up since, really, Ivory Edition and the rules changes there was that events really have to work hard to earn their slot in their deck, and a lot of the time you just don't have the space to be able to actually fit them in. 
especially for the, the, the quality of the card that you're getting out of it. So one of the things design has been looking into is increasing the strength of events. And as those increase, Hero Sensei might improve in quality. But as of right now, there just might not be enough there, especially given that the, the ones in this set specifically don't work as well with it as some people would hope. Yeah, and so for the those of you out there who are not hyper-rules technical types, uh, because Hero Sensei limits the number of times that you can take actions from events, and the three events in this set all give the player an ability, those abilities that it gives the player are technically still from the event. So if you have a vision imparted, which gives you the player ability to give a face-up card in your province karmic, every time you use the open give a target face-up card in your province karmic, that uses up one of your six actions from events. So they're not they're not very efficient with with Hira Sensei, but I, I guess the power level thing with events seems like it stretches further back than than just Ivory Edition. Although the need to run more holdings in Ivory Edition than in, in the the prior rule set, I guess exacerbated it is that you have some really powerful meta events or just other really, really potent events, and then piles of events that can never get played because you only have maybe three slots for them index, and, and now you don't even have that usually in Ivory, which is yeah, w- one of the reasons I always wanted something like a Stronghold that let me pile lots of events in. Like Cole Wall, but not broken. Yes, uh, <laughs> uh, that's that does tend to be like the one issue with things like that, where you can get close to that line, but you never want to go over the line of making it too good, too efficient, and everything like that. And also with the events, we never want to go over the line where you're getting towards things like Wall is Breached, for instance, for a member edition, which just pretty much went in every single deck because, hey, killing a personality, that seems good. It, it is. It usually is. Now, in addition to Hira, you've got one sensei that is specific to a clan, and that is, or specific to a single clan. And that's Yajdin Sensei for the spider. Basically, your what your benefit is that your fear effects will now destroy attachments. Your drawback is that all of your personalities have to be Shadowlands in addition to the you know stat modifications. That seems pretty cool. You've actually got a finally got a card, Looming Darkness, in this set. That's a big pro Shadowlands power card. So I think that Yajdin is is a fairly exciting card. I I hope there's also another undead specific sensei coming, but at least we are getting some more Shadowlands uh, vibe going on here. Yeah, if it wasn't clear from where the story is kind of going, Shadowlands is coming back in kind of a big way. (laughs) So uh, this is kind of the first step in that process, and like you said, uh, looming darkness or the Diet Coke of evil portents, as we put it in (laughs) playtest. It's a step in that direction. You also kind of run into the issue where there was a lot of like Shadowlands punishment stuff and not a lot of Shadowlands like benefit stuff, which kind of hurts because the the Shadowlands trait is kind of just tacked on to a lot of spider stuff, or at least it, it appears that way in some circumstances, and there's no real benefit out of it. It's actually more of like a detractor, especially when there's um, events or other things that punish you for that. So the deck restriction on Yujin and Sensei is a little harsh 
at first, but again, it's another one of those ones where you can definitely put a deck together and you can definitely use it, and the deck that I ran in Cotes this season, after I stopped playing Mantis and switched over to Spider near the end, it was almost running all Chatelain's personalities anyway. So as more come out, you can fill out your personality base. Maybe you don't have to make as hard of options between Shadowlands and non-Shadowlands people. Uh, but for now, they definitely do already have the personality base to be able to run it. Oh, yeah. Right. If you're if you're playing Yajidin Sensei, you probably didn't want to run Susumu anyway. And you lose the monks. But once you exclude those categories that kind of have their own independent card bases, such a, a high portion, I it seems like, of the remaining guys are yeah, Shadowlands anyway. Mm. So that leaves one sensei in here who I can only assume is the uh, leader of the military forces that fail horribly at quashing the spider whenever that happens in the storyline. And I have to say, out of all of these, he's the one I am uh, least fond of as a card. Uh, the Ichigo sensei, get extra honor during battle resolution and for shooting things in the face during battle. Yep. It kind of encourages a battle-based honor deck, which hasn't really been much of a thing yet in uh, Ivory and into 20 festivals. Technically, I guess Dragon could try to run it, but it, it doesn't seem like something that they would want to do over the other honor-specific stuff that they have. Yeah, that was that seemed to be one of the limiters, is usually the honor themes have their own specific sensei that are more important than this. I guess there were some Phoenix, some Phoenix honor in 20 festivals that was battle based, but Phoenix mm-hmm. can't use this. Correct. So, all right. So clans, right? People care about those. Crab. I have to say that I guess this is primarily looking ahead. My favorite, maybe not my favorite, but it, it seemed like the most interesting crab personalities in this set were the two Kayao, you know? Cheap destined guy with personal honor. That that's the kind of guy who's always handy in a in an honor deck, right? And you've got a guy who has a repeat use honor gain and is not too expensive and has three personal honor. Those are things that are traditionally attractive in honor decks. The sensei for this isn't out yet, so I don't I wouldn't really want to play Kayao now, but those seem like really solid setup for Whatever the Kaio deck is going to be. Yeah, the the big deficiencies in the Kaio deck right now is just they don't have as many honor personalities as other honor decks have. So they have trouble proclaiming. They start from behind on honor decks already. So they're kind of trying to play catch up. And like I said, without the Sensei yet, it's it's still a theme that's in its building process. But both of these guys should kind of help that as the deck kind of coalesces. Yeah, and I guess most of the rest of the ones, like the, the Kuni... And uh, Tornasuki XP seem fair, so therefore not, you know, they don't seem bad, but they seem okay, don't seem terribly exciting, right? I think the Crab Dishonor is what just won the the first post-Thunderous Acclaim deck, which is, you know, a a theme from last year. Do you think uh, these other four guys, the Tukuni, the Toritaka, or Tornasuki are going to lift their respective crab themes to new heights? Well, I know the the Kuni deck has been out there, whether it's running out of the actual Dishonor Sensei to take advantage of the five gold box, or kind of trying it out with the, the theme-specific Sensei itself. 
I've seen a lot of them kind of going for the, the School of Wizardry builds. So kind of taking advantage of some of the out-of-clan guys that you can use that to pay the full cost for. So uh, Kuni Soseki, the, the 10 gold 4 force one with Resilient yep. and the kill action, he fits like great right into that deck. And even in Ikarasu, the, the other Kuni Shigenji that they got isn't really terribly that bad either, because she's a 4-4 personality for relatively cheap. So they they got some tools. I think their Dishonor deck is still very strong, as proven by Steve Palumbo's win at the Bride event. So that deck might not be getting as much stuff now that there's only one specific Dishonor theme in the Jesters for the Crane. So that might fall by the wayside as the other decks improve, but for now, that, that's definitely their strongest. Well, I mean, there's always Scorpion generic theme is kind of Dishonor. Yes. So there's always always hanging around out there. Now, the Crane, the two personalities that I like, that, that I uh, apparently, they, they must be for Honor decks because I care about the fact that they have Compassion, which is kind of a courtesy variant that's better for Honor decks. But like, Doji Burrito, if you have Compassion, you get an extra personal honor, four personal honor, not something that you get a terrible lot of here. So seems like it could be worthwhile, but especially Doji Hoshishana, for, if, if you have Compassion for five gold, you get a three personal honor gain, you get to draw a card, and then she straightens herself while you're using her for going and getting the favor or other political actions. Yeah, exactly. She, a lot of their incidental kind of out-of-battle stuff does require a lot of bouting. So having her to straighten herself is actually relatively helpful, especially with that cheap of a body. So that is kind of exactly what they want in that spot. And compassion is a lot easier to to turn on in defensive decks because you're expecting to kind of lose provinces versus military opponents anyway. So yeah. hers will be turned on pretty quickly, and that, that makes her very undercosted for what you get. Yeah, we've got uh, one of the the remaining, possibly last batch of Winter Court 3 personalities coming up in, in Doji Moro, most likely to be flirted with, I believe, at Winter Court 3, although maybe I'm misrecalling. Assuming you like crazy chicks, I believe, right? Because she kind of had a split personality thing going, I think, right? I think that within the uh, the play-by-post forum environment, you can... As long as you have the other correct attributes, crazy crazy is probably an attractor, right? It just lets different groups of characters want to flirt with your character. Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, she and uh, Toshiguri, once we get to Lion, were some of the, the last couple Winter Court personalities we kind of wanted to get in there. It's been a long time, actually, since the Winter Court 3 actually happened, so we were trying to just find places to fit them in. And she came in here. Yeah, it probably feels more recent to me because I wasn't in Winter Court 4. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, yeah. you, you spent enough time in Winter Court 3 that it probably felt like it lasted for a while, too. So <laughs> it, it it did, yes. Kutsuki <laughs> Hurumi. No, did I say something? No? Someone who desperately needed it to be experienced before? Oh, well. Now, on the other hand, I'm not too excited about Dojimoro either. I mean, not a lot of force, decent personal honor. She's resilient, but, what, I got a Fear 2 ability? Yeah, she... As their uh, magistrate stuff kind of comes into focus, she is a body, I guess. The being able to defend once to give you presence and then not die from resolution is 
okay, but a lot of the time she'll probably just get killed by a range attack or something like that while she's defending anyway, so the Resilient doesn't have as much of a chance to trigger as like some other like larger force personalities. But I mean, if you can get that fear off and actually get her a force bonus from it, she starts to actually be a problem. Yeah, now I've seen a lot of crane players complaining about the this sort of inability to battle honor duel. You've got Shinichi in this, which is kind of focused on that sort of thing. Perhaps more importantly, you have Battlefield Challenge, which lets you get a real effect from a duel and gain honor off of it. Do you think that crane players will get any more satisfaction on on that front for this set? We'll have to see, because uh, as we start talking about the other clans that actually have dueling themes in 20 festivals, it, they're all kind of lagging behind at this point, just on the competitive sense. Like There isn't enough out there to encourage you to duel. Crane's kind of in that same boat. They they have their th- formed-up theme from last year, so they have all their duelists already. They'll get occasional ones like Shinichi here, but it's tough to try and duel in an environment where a lot of people are running like standing fast decks that have incidental chi bonuses off the weapons and things like that. It, it requires a lot more setup that maybe it didn't require in last year of Ivory. Uh, yeah, I don't think the Crane were even too enthused about their dueling last year. It does feel kind of odd sometimes with the way the, the themes work now that you've got, what, three clans with dedicated dueling themes and neither of them is Dragon or Crane. Mm. But, yeah, so I, I guess which is another thing sort of laying out there, right? If you if you see more cards coming out that help dueling generally, they're likely to help the other clans that have dedicated dueling themes this year more than they are to help Something like Crane, so it, it may not matter anyway. Yeah, exactly. It it, it kind of it's been pushing them a little more towards either the the courtier based or the the magistrate based kind of honor decks that are, are less inclined to duel and more just uh, defensive actions that gain you honor and various things like that. Okay, let's see. On the the dragon front, they're coming out of I think they were the depending on how you look at it, but how I look at it, they were the second least successful clan in uh, 20 festivals, obviously Spider leading the charge on the futility front for the end of, of last Kote season. Tagashi Tomeko seemed to get uh, the most chatter. She comes out as a 3 force for 4 and then can essentially is sacrificing that force rather than bowing herself in order to generate her ranged attacks. Yeah, and she's a, a house versus Mantis, so if they... Uh... <laughs> continue to be as popular as they are. She's a, a all-star for that. Yes, you got a nice little ranged four right off the the bat. You've got another ranged attack in in Katsuki Mizukabe, but he's pretty hefty on the the cost front. Katsuki Akito, you three personal honor draw a card when he runs in front of an attacking army and blows up, but nothing for the existing themes that seemed super exciting that seemed like it would be able to lift dragon out of its, its sort of doldrums do you see anything in here that's going to help my boys pick it up a bit well i guess there's there isn't too much like you said that that jumps out at you as something that's gonna wow you and push you like all the way up to the top it's just a kind of a a general Solid personalities help you fill out your your gold curve in certain spots, but none that really kind of say, "Hey, this is exactly what I want for the current meta." 
like we said, Tamiko is great if Mantis continues to be popular, but she's a fire monk, so that doesn't really fit exactly into really anything that they're specifically doing right now. Like they they did get one of their Kote wins with I believe a, a Tamori defensive Shigenja deck. So I guess technically the Tamori could try to work their way in there, but with two and one personal honor, it doesn't really help because they're more of military focused. Yeah, the the Tamori here are presumably for whatever the Tamori Earth Shugenja Commander Sensei is that I would anticipate being in the next set, since that's the right evil portents would be the scheduled set for everybody getting their second theme specific Sensei. Yep. So I maybe I'm just a Debbie Downer, but I I kind of look at it and be like ah, I I feel like the Dragon's hopes for 20 festivals are probably pinned on whether or not that sensei makes for a good enough deck. It seems hard with the the base set being so many cards and with the smaller pool and so it's a, a larger chunk of it relatively speaking, it seems hard for clans to pull existing themes, you know, fully formed themes up if they launch and don't have at least a, a solid showing to begin with. Yeah, pretty much a lot of the the themes that didn't get Sensei right off the bat in 20 festivals are, are lagging a bit behind on the competitive scene just because they don't have the, the cards to kind of focus their, their decks in the way that the theme wants to play. Oh, well, I, I think definitely that, but I mean, I, I, I focus on those themes because I... let's I mean, if you're looking at the themes that did get Sensei, either the generic box theme or the or a theme that did get a sensei, I, I don't know how much I expect those to pick up later. Like, if if at this point you don't look at a theme that already has a sensei and see that theme at least doing decently in tournaments, I I kind of don't expect it to ever really get there. That It, it seems unlikely that the couple of personalities that drop for that theme in the next couple of expansions are going to bring it up from lousy to good yeah well we'll have to see as the year develops because the only instance of that i can really think of is like i said the technically the tamori earth shigenja deck didn't do really anything until the tail end of uh, the i restrict environment or into this year and then like the, the biggest example is like mantis scouts which were just awful at the beginning of Ivory, and their sensei didn't help at all, but once they picked up Sheikah, all of the cards that were kind of bad out of that were able to actually coalesce into a real deck. Which is an interesting example, because that's that's a theme that already had its sensei, but the thing that made it take off was that there ended up being effectively a second sensei mm-hmm. for the theme. I don't know what the moral of that is. Sensei are important, I guess? Yeah, I- Starting with certain actions in play is uh, definitely a bonus. <laughs> yeah, sensei are important, strongholds are important, etc. So, Lion did better than Dragon by my standards in 20 festivals, which is that they were substantially better at making the cut. I think overall in Kote's season, they actually won fewer Kote, which, and left for some grumpy blind players. Now, and this is a clan where I don't see bad stuff, but I also don't see anything that really excites me about what they're getting. There's a lot of guys who are perfectly, fairly costed, solid personalities. Is there anything here that stands out 
for you is here. I, is a Kono Kano better than I, I? I'd like him to be better than I think he is. He is very good. The, the issue is he's only one unique guy to fit into their decks, and only one unique personality. Unless they're like someone like older versions of Kuan or something like that from Crab, they're <laughs> they're not going to completely define what your deck is doing. So Kano's ability is powerful, but it's not something you can really build your deck around. You kind of just have to go with the flow of all the different various tactician actions, and once you finally get him out and have him in a battle, he can probably help you win it just because of the card advantage that his ability provides. But other than that, uh, like you said, the the duelists, while they're, I guess, solid for their costs, they don't really push that deck over the top where it was. Their commanders, uh, I mean, the best commander card that they got was probably the uh, the rare lion follower that uh is basically just a better spearman that yeah. uh is that razor fang yes that he is very strong for the deck but he's not a personality he doesn't like make your personalities better he's just a, a really good card so that's that's basically what kind of lion is is at at this point is to just have kind of some solid mid-level cards and this this set's not really pushing them over to that the higher end level your razor fang was was actually the the one uh, lion-specific card I'd written down in, but Kano though, at least he seems to have possibly some synergy with with the toolbox way that you can build tacticians. In that, if you're already toolboxing in order to tutor up cards, that could result in you having a wider a wider variety of targets for his ability. So not only would you be getting card advantage, but you'd have a possibly a greater chance of already having in your discard pile the one thing that you need. If I if, if if this card is really effective against your deck, I can tutor it up and then I can hopefully discipline it back with Kano. Yeah, the one downside there is the best action that you can use right now is standing fast. <laughs> and Lion are kinda at a disadvantage versus other standing fast decks because they're kind of forced to run a little bit of a smaller personality base compared to what other clans can run. Okay, well then Mantis I right, Mantis, they even after uh even after you crushed their dreams of uh just complete and total domination and or saved them from being banhammered out of existence they still had a very good run while there theoretically aren't any official new cards coming for the the Sheikah deck they still got Suruchi Akira which Seems to be an improvement over some very similar cards that were already being run in the Sheikah deck. And of course, non-Sheikah decks were, were kind of doing well for them anyway. I think most, if not all, of the Mantis wins after uh, your article were not Sheikah decks. Yeah, there's a, a couple RNI Sensei decks, and then I believe a Kobe Sensei deck as well. So, Saruchi Akira, like I said, yes, yeah, she, she seems great. Another one that has gotten a lot of talk where I I think I was on the other end of it is Kitsune Naraku. She's a destined four gold personality with three personal honor, but for a clan that is not doesn't really care about proclaiming people. But her her big thing is right is every time your opponent uses a card to draw a card, then you can hand out a, a plus one force plus one chi token. 
I was not super enthused about this because it seems like I have to do that three times before I've caught up to the gold I paid for. Her. But a lot of people thought that she was that she's fantastic. So where do you think she sits out? She's definitely solid. She's better, ironically enough, in an environment where Mantis is still popular, just because they're drawing so many cards off their box that she's getting triggered a lot. Sure. But um, other than that, uh, like you said, she requires a lot of setup to be the equivalent of other personalities that you would already run in her slot. Yes, she's only four gold, but being zero force base hurts when you're a military deck. So, and like I said, the the three personal honor isn't really doing anything for you either. And in fact, it might actually be a downside, especially if things like crab dishonor are still popular. Yeah. And the normal mantis benefit is that you're running a whole bunch of one and zero personal honor personalities, so you you don't get hit as hard by things like brilliant cascade in. And she like opens you up to that in a way that the deck normally doesn't have to worry about. Yeah. So she's she's powerful in the right environment, but I don't see her being used at the especially at the extent that some people seem to think that she's going to get played. There's a couple more seemingly solid Kensei personalities here. What what else do you like to make a, a tournament showing out of the Mantis personalities? I know for a fact, because I've been playing around with it, that the, the Kensai deck is close. One of the big things in that is Yoritomo Minoko is fantastic. As a lot of times she will have naval because you're focused in on the peasant weapons to begin with. Mm-hmm. And her ability gets around things like Turtle Shell, because if her action doesn't kill the whatever you're trying to kill, she straightens, so you basically didn't have to pay a cost for it when they stopped it. Sure. She can also kill attachments for no cost, that sort of stuff. So yep. she's just an overall solid personality, and you, you can't overlook the fact, I keep going back to this, but a lot of the military decks in the environment right now are running standing fast, and her being on the relatively expensive side is actually kind of a, a helpful part to that deck, because your your peasant weapons are generally so low in cost that you're, you're going to have a lot of cheap guys with cheap weapons, which runs you into that a lot, and having that that solid, expensive personality that has such a good ability is a very much a boon to the deck. We do see another Moshi in this set. There are several Thunder spells as well. None of those really lit my fire. Do you think the the Moshi are going to get a any sort of pick-me-up from this? I, I, well, and they've got so much to compete with, too, as far mm. as other strong Mantis options. Yep. I think... Just on a general level, as the Cotis has improved, just Mantis is in a really good spot right now. They have the ability to kind of play around with the various themes like not really a lot of the other clans do, just because their stronghold is so strong. So you can kind of go the Thunder route if you want to. I mean, you don't even really need to run the Sensei either, depending upon what you what route you want to go. And something like Honest Stormborn Wings... Uh, which is one of their spells that forces you to target a specific personality. It actually plays a couple roles in the deck now, because one of the issues going into this set for the Thunder deck was their their personalities are kind of on the lower end of the force scale, and there aren't really that many of the Thunder specifically spells that actually give you force. So having the combination of just a spell that can slowly bump your force up if you need it, or kind of mess with what your opponent's doing to kind of... I referred to it when I was testing it as double naval because you you naval first and then you basically force their first action to deal with something that they they can't really touch or that you don't really care about them killing. 
and then you get another action before your opponent really can kind of finally actually play into the battle. So that gives them a lot of tempo that the deck didn't really have at this point, which is pretty helpful for it. Anything that could be fairly described as double naval is probably going to be annoying. Oh, yes. Well, as the Mantis player in me, uh, <laughs> I'll take as many naval actions as I can. Well, but that, that leads to problems, as we learned in Lotus. So yeah. <laughs> Not just Mantis players. Everybody will take as many <laughs> naval actions as they can get. Yes. Well, and that has been another thing that could be pointed to as why Mantis are are fairly strong, is that sometimes you look at Mantis personalities and go like, do they actually pay for naval on this guy? I mean, they do if there's like a ranged attack on the personality, but then you have three force for three naval scouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why if you look at the Mantis personalities in this set, only two of them have the possibility of having naval. One of them requires setup to actually give it to you, and the other one doesn't actually have a printed action on them. So we kind of saw at this point that Mantis was being pretty powerful, so we kind of wanted to make sure that personalities in the set kind of pushed them in slightly different directions than what the, the decks that were being successful were. Speaking of clans with strong boxes, we've got the Phoenix. They also did extremely well during the Kote season. They did not rack up wins in the way that Mantis did, but man, they, they made the cut just all the time at a rate that was pretty much the same as, as Mantis did, which tends to, to bode well for a clan going forward and how it's it's going to win. What, Which of the, the Phoenix personalities in here do you think have the, the best chance to have an impact? Well, they're... Their biggest deck right now is kind of the defensive honor that doesn't really care about its personalities. So they throw him into battle to kill him to be able to get the stronghold action off. They use things like wheels within wheels to sacrifice them themselves. Just kind of a, a blitzish honor to try and just get as much honor as possible as quickly as possible. And like said, that, that was doing very well, but that deck had a, an issue with dealing with Mantis, which a lot of the time would kind of push them out and... Mantis would get the win, even though Phoenix was having a very successful time of actually getting into the cut. And one person that really, really helps in that matchup is Asako Kazuki, mm-hmm. who is a very cheap Shigenja for them. He's only 5 gold for their 3 personal honor. He has resilient for other decks if you're defending and they can't kill him. And it's important because he can't be killed by melee or range attacks either. So a lot of the times, that'll be the primary action sets for a lot of the different military decks that are out there. And... If they can't kill this guy, then you can get a whole bunch of other random gain two honor actions off, and that that can accelerate your clock by sometimes like a full turn, which is generally what the Phoenix deck needs to push itself over the edge. Yeah, and with resilient, you'll have to deal with him showing up twice if you don't have a non-attack way to kill him. Yeah, and the the funny thing is that sometimes him having resilient might actually be a drawback because he doesn't die to get back with the sensei <laughs> or the uh, stronghold rather. Sure. So, it's a some interesting game situations where that happens, but uh, I, I guess you're never really technically unhappy that your guy doesn't die. Well, yeah, you know, there's probably sometimes. Let's see. Uh, on the non Shugenja front, Shibahano seemed like he could have some potential, like solid stats for what he does. I I normally would be a little skittish about a guy who's only out of melee two. But he's he's okay on the stats, and when you do shoot piddly things with your melee attack, you gain honor, which 
Uh, I hear that a battle ability that kills anything in Gain's Honor can be handy. Do you think that dis, you know, despite his non Shugenja courtierness, he'll have the ability to make it into some of these decks? It, it kind of depends on the the action set that the deck wants to run. I know a lot of them have been running some force penalty stuff, and if you have a force penalty to set him up, then the fact that he's got a melee two is actually just great because you can pick off something that you normally wouldn't have been able to destroy or save a province that you otherwise wouldn't be able to save and gain honor while you're doing it, which is kind of a, a great deal in just the long run. The unfortunate thing is, like you said, he's not a Shigenja, so a lot of the, the Shigenja builds are already kind of running tight on their Phoenix-specific personality slots because they're running the unaligned guys. So if you can find the room for him, he might be worth it. So there might be just kind of a, a different build that focuses on that that he might be able to take advantage in. Another personality who in a vacuum seems like she could be pretty exciting is Isawa Hibana. She's expensive, but really powerful ranged attacks from her spells and her spells, fire spells, which are the ones that tend to produce ranged attack, attach for less, and she has Conqueror while she's got a fire spell. You can go to town with her, but the deck, uh, is that... It's kind of a last year's theme deck. Yeah, it, it does kind of stretch back into that. I don't know how much results the deck actually put up. I think it, it made some cuts, and it did relatively well, but it's kind of in the similar position to where the, the Kuni Shigenja deck is, where you have a lot of expensive guys. You kind of are pushed into a circumstance where you want to run School of Wizardry to be able to afford them. So you're kind of doing some weird things with your gold scheme, and sometimes the deck just doesn't come out right. So she is very strong, and she's not unique either, so she kind of fills out a lot of spots in the deck. But how consistent the deck is is the real question. And right there, are there really aren't new fire spells coming, because this year we have Water Shugenja, we have Earth Shugenja, and some Air Shugenja, I think, maybe with some of the Honor-Dishonor themes, but did we even have a fire spell? Yeah, there's Warning Flame, which I believe is fire. But it doesn't really fit the same, because, I mean, I guess you could reduce some force on some guys, because it is a force penalty if you want it to be to range attack, but you probably, if you're running fire spells, you probably just want them to have the kill actions themselves as opposed to setting them up. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, let me go back to that, since we already covered both of the clans that have Earth Shugenja. This is a set of spells that I thought that, act, and the spells in a follower that I thought actually had some some solid possibilities. Uh, Hirakura's Attendant, 3 force for 5 gold, a melee 3 that doesn't require bowing when it's on a an Earth Shugenja, which is what you're going to be, you know, your entire deck is going to be full of. That seems quite good. Uh, nourished by Fallen Leaves. Uh, now, you know, both of these leave your Nourished by Fallen Leaves and Tracing with the Mountain's Finger by themselves leave your personality kind of vulnerable, but Free spells, Nourished by Fallen Leaves gives you Conqueror and might give you Force Bumps. Tracing with the Mountain's Finger gives you a repeat use melee to attack that doesn't cost anything. And, and those both seem to add more components that might actually help the Kuni or the, especially the Tsunamori if they get a, a good sensei move into the competitive sphere. Yeah, exactly. They're, they just need cards to fill out the deck at this point. They just don't have enough to really coalesce the themes. And 
as they get those, it'll be better. And these two spells are definitely a, a start in that direction because they both are, are relatively powerful for especially their cost. And similarly, since we already, uh, I think, touched on the two clans who are relevant for this, Crane and Dragon have magistrate themes that involve dishonoring enemy personalities. Caught among thieves, if I am targeting a dishonorable enemy personality, I get to gain honor and draw a card and it costs me nothing. That seems really good for either of those decks. Yep, and it also has courage, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, I, I feel courage has been a bit less impactful than, say, courtesy. Yeah, it's, uh, I think as you mentioned when you were discussing the, the trait originally, or the keyword rather, uh, it's a lot more influential in draft in comparison to constructed just because there's a way more fear in draft, but it, it definitely can be relevant in certain circumstances, so. Hey, let's see, Scorpion, let's start with something that's not even a personality. Ivory Ascendance, always handy to be able to dishonor people, it, it sometimes can be, you know, really important to get that first dishonor in. Ivory Ascendance, it, it costs two to do if you're doing this, but right, if you've got the two gold, it's, you get your dishonor, you get to immediately follow up with whatever it is you need to, to hit them for for being dishonored, and you get to draw a card to replace itself. Yeah, getting, getting the card back immediately for this, it's, Something that's made a lot of cards like uh, A New Alliance, for instance, VTD, even though VTD is just, for two reference, is just really, really strong to begin with. <laughs> the, the, the draw card on this can't really be overlooked because it's, it, it's not costing you anything other than that two gold that you might not have been using in some circumstances anyway. And especially getting the additional action. There's a lot of things that, that punish dishonor that, are kind of being counteracted by things that Rihanna guys right now. And having something that immediately gives you the follow-up is pretty pretty strong. So I, I could see this seeing uh, a decent amount of play. Yeah, I dishonor your guy on my buy my ivory courtroom. Yeah, exactly. And on the card draw, right, there's a reason why cantrips are an evergreen thing in in Magic. It, right, it produces a lot of flexibility with uh, the cards to be able to modify abilities and mana cost and then add that little draw draw a card in there to turn things that might otherwise never be playable effects into into something that's worth worth playing because you get to draw a card off of it. I guess prior to the, the modern era or the contemporary or whatever we're calling post-ivory L5R kind of had a harder time doing that because one of the design constraints that ends up historically more being there for L5R cards is the tendency to just make strategies cost nothing, which makes it really hard to ever make a minor effect that's worth playing. Yeah, exactly. And invest is something nice that we can use to kind of boost up effects that maybe they aren't exactly worth a card, but in some circumstances you you want to spend them for their, their cheap effect just to do it, just to get out of your hand to do something immediately. But you have the freedom, and a lot of the cases for something as simple as the invest, like with the ivory card, it basically you're almost always going to use the invest on it to draw the card. But it's a very rare circumstance where you absolutely have to to do that, where you're actually spending the card to do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to back my myself up on Scorpion, still do Sonar. My with with the proviso that, of course, we we don't have the the Scorpion can say 
sensei yet, which seems important given how much of their abilities revolve around madness. It's like the opposite of the Susumu Clout Token thing that Brian talked about a couple episodes ago. But Bayushi Fuyuko seems like the possibly scariest scorpion card in this. Anybody who can you know, either prevent attacks or cause repeated honor losses seems pretty good. Uh, yes, definitely. And she also sows the seeds of distress, so that's also strong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, she... I think her basic version is better, but having more of this type of effect is, is always good. So anything, anytime you get a reputable honor loss on a card in play, it's very strong. And having more copies of various different cards that do the same thing also are very strong. So her ability, while it's something that your opponent can try to play around, it is still very good for the deck. Yes, and Fuyuko basic is pretty annoying. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So we've also got a couple of ninja in here, including people who are actually aligned, finally getting three more three-fours for five gold. Uh, Shugenja, do you think that that, that deck is uh, going to be heading anywhere? It's improving. I think it's running into the same sort of issues that the Lion deck is, is running into, where you just don't have the, the personality base to, to fully push that theme yet. And they have their sensei, but the sensei kind of puts a bit of a, a deck restriction on you of having that the minus one gold. So you're you're kind of not coming out as fast as a lot of the other decks that are uh, starting second a lot of the time. So it, it's it's kind of on its back foot already. And I don't know if the the duelists and ninjas in this set are, are something that can really kind of push it back. If you've got compassion, Kanako becomes exciting. Yeah, and if you don't, not so much. Then. Again, going second a lot of the time, you're you're more likely to get compassion um, quicker. The biggest issue with it is with her, you're recruiting her for the most part, uh, unless you have something really weird happen during your dynasty phase, and that's after you've attacked for the turn. Yeah. So if you're in a position where you're you're kind of coming back in the game and you take a province to even it back off, then her compassion can slightly be uh, hard to actually trigger. <laughs> it turns off, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the compassions can be sort of a pseudo courtesy, but you know, so, seems seems so 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 much more reliable in honor and dishonor decks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now we have the, I guess, for story purposes at least, sort of the stars of the the show. I, I noted it was kind of odd. The right the the set is titled Thunderous Acclaim about the new. Supposed to be about Saken becoming emperor, but the actual story reflected in the cards is much more about the spider. Well, it's a lot of thunderous acclaim. Everyone's happy that uh, Saken got elected, but no one's really paying attention to the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> so, story-wise, the the out of that, the flashiest card in the set is uh, obviously Kanpeki Unleashed. So. Let's take advantage of the the fact that you are a a PDT member. Is there anything that you can say about the design process for Kanpeki, either you know mechanically how you made it fit the story, whatever? Definitely. The one of the biggest things that we wanted to do in this version is compare him to what 
is in the Ivory version of Kampeki, the, the starter deck version, and kind of show a different side to him at least a little bit, especially given the fact that he is Shadowlands now, which is a big story point, which I'm sure they're going to they get to in the story once uh, everything goes down as uh, things progress with uh, what happened in the uh, the first Thunderous Acclaim fictions. So him fitting into the Yujin Sensei spider deck was one of the, the main focuses that we did. As part of our draft development, we kind of make sure that everything in the set flows down. You can run the senseis. The senseis have their themes. And when you're running such a restrictive sensei as what Yujin Sensei does, you kind of want to have something built into the set that rewards that. And Kenpeki is definitely that reward. And his, his fear abilities, the fact that he's got a fear 5, which is very strong, especially in an environment where you're possibly hitting very expensive followers with that amount of force. His ability itself is something that took a little bit of time to actually kind of feel out of what we actually wanted to do in it, because other than a couple of various, there's that one kata and things like that, where it turns your your fear actions into kill actions, mm-hmm. it, it's it's inerrant kind of card disadvantage to really go for things like Okura's released and stuff like that, because you already have the action on the board, you're already using it, so spending another card to do what a melee or range attack does itself is kind of putting you a little bit further behind, even though you are actually killing something. So having someone like Kampeki that can come in that immediately lets you target spells, which is a big difference compared to what it is um, normally, lets you do something a little bit different with the deck that you couldn't before, because you can kill spells from on the personalities without having to kill the personality itself. The, the sensei allows you to destroy attachments just flat out, so your your fear actions now can basically kill whatever you want to kill, other than personalities, which you, again, have occurs as release for. So there's a lot of various different play to it that you don't have normally, and that's something big for a champion, because a lot of the ivory champions kind of had the, the drawback of, yeah, well, we bring them into play, they, they kind of have this effect on the game, but is it really worth the gold cost to have that effect? And something like Kampeki is definitely worth the, the gold cost. Let's see, we've got the spider, another one of those uh, delightful dueling themes where I'm sure you're so excited to be talking about. Of the duelist personalities, Daigatsu Anita did seem quite popular, but mostly for the art and not so much for the the card? Well, if you get a sword on her, she is very powerful, but you you don't really want to try and have too many personalities that require other cards that make them really good. I can definitely see where people want, like the art, uh, enjoy it, and I know uh, Jeremy, who's the designer that did some of the Spider Guys this set, he he really was focused on some of the art descriptions on it, so him, I'm sure he was enjoying the feedback of hearing that, that all the people love the art for the Spider Guys. But, that aside, she can get force, she can force them into a, a force duel, which is how you kind of get around a lot of the other dueling themes that maybe have lower force personalities in comparison to when Onita uses her ability. So she's something that can help enable the deck, but again, it, it runs into the same thing. There's there's not that many duelist personalities that you're running yet just because they don't exist yet. So having kind of more people to fill out the deck is good, but she doesn't jump out 
to say that the deck is going to kind of get over that hill and become fully like top tier. The other theme that we haven't touched on yet is the the ninja for them. Ninabe Aizo seems like she's got a pretty solid amount of potential. If you could hit somebody with no abilities, and there's quite a few out there, especially can be good against some swarmy things, which although maybe those are not around as much because there's a solid amount of meta against them now. Basically just, I bow your guy and I replace my force with the new personality. That seems like it could have a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. And her being two force for six gold, it's okay. It's not really how you'd really want to spend your gold in an efficiency ratio. But again, her her giving you another body can't really be overlooked just because having more personalities out is generally a, a good thing, and especially... If you're hitting a personality that uh, is higher force than her since she cares about chi, it kind of makes up for that fact. So so the ninja deck is another one that's getting there. This one, I think, the personalities from 20 festivals are really kind of not all over the place, but not really focused. They're all just kind of very solid personalities that are are starting to kind of make the theme of messing with people's actions and punishing people for not having abilities kind of work together. But that's one I think that the, the Sensei, uh, when it does come out, will probably help in a similar manner to like some of the other ones, like the Tomori Commanders. How much, if any, of some of the things like what you're talking about with with some of the themes not quite being there from 20 festivals, does how much, if any, was that affected by, I guess, effectively the art restrictions for sets and the fact that you kind of have to do a certain amount of reprinting in base sets? It definitely does have an effect on reprints, just because there's only so many slots you can do in the set. We have everything kind of assigned down. Everyone gets the same amount of stuff per clan. The issue comes in where you're doing themes that aren't exactly the same as the themes were in the past. So you'll you'll bring back reprints of personalities that had, like, the Duelist trade or something like that, but never actually had a theme built around them. So they don't they don't actually fit exactly what the theme is going for. So they're great, they they work, they they might be well costed or have a good ability, but they don't help the theme come together in a set. So that's why kind of right now in the environment you're seeing a lot of just decks that are the best cards that each of the clans have together built to take advantage of certain aspects of the deck versus decks built to take advantage of their theme-specific sensei and the themes that they're based on. And there's there's still a lot of variety in that, but not the variety of, oh, I'm playing this Tamori Commander's theme, this is a Tamori Commander's deck. I'm just playing the best dragon personalities I can to play an Enlightenment deck, like with Tan 1, the California Cote with. It's an overall dragon like clan theme of doing stuff with Enlightenment, but it's not one of the, the focused themes in this, on the cards, just because the themes themselves don't seem to have enough yet to compete. That actually reminds me of complaint that sometimes comes out, not restricted to Dragon, but I'm most familiar with it from other Dragon players complaining about it, which is that it it, it is almost always a significant advantage to have a variety of themes, or I guess within the era of you know of L5R design having themes, to have themes that kind of overlap each other because so often the best deck will end up being 
well, let's just take the best guys regardless of theme and just kind of put those together. And if you have a variety of themes that don't really work well together, then your clan is not going to be able to make that. And so you're, you're at the mercy of whether or not one particular theme actually makes the grade, which then it, you know, it sometimes just won't. Yeah, and uh, definitely the, the competitive scene kind of hit that in Ivory Edition because so many of the the two themes for each of the clans, there was one military theme and one non-military theme. And for like high honor clans, sometimes that you can combine the two of them together because a lot of the times honor decks are just looking for personalities with three personal honor and abilities and not so much looking for people that kind of work together. But when you get to like the lower end clans, like for instance the spider with their the Susumu theme or the Mantis with their Kitsune theme, where their personalities are so hyper-focused on the themes themselves, they don't really spread to other decks. So it takes a lot longer for those type of decks to, to form, and sometimes they don't even form, just because there aren't enough cards that singularly actually help the deck that are competitive enough, just because you're only getting two personalities per theme per set. They're just isn't as many spots in the set to actually support it. So that's that's something that hopefully, I, I can say it as much as I can, but it really kind of plays out in the cards itself that you'll see in 20 festivals. We, we did pay attention to that because, again, it is it is something that you don't want to kind of shackle you down because making personalities that are so hyper-focused is a recipe for, like you said, the, the clans that just happen to have the themes that pair together well are the ones that have the strong decks, and it's not that it's the fault of the other clan that they got an honor theme this this go-around that's it's holding them back. We, we want it to be the players making the, uh, the choices on why they want to build versus the design of them just not working together. Okay, well, before we move on to another clan that seems to have a pointless honor theme, Let's see, we, we've covered both of the ninja cards and the ninja clans. There are several ninja cards in this set. The one I'm actually most interested in is Poison Shuriken, because I look at this, all right, it's plus, it's two force and a chi for three, so pretty standard weapon stats, and the battle action seems quite good for the battle action you would usually get on this. You know, you're going to, to be able to find somebody who meets the, or probably find a, a personality who has the no abilities or who has the poison token, even if your deck isn't really firing on all cylinders for those aspects. But this is another card that seemed to get very poor reception, at least from what I saw from the the sort of clans that it was aimed at. Do you think that the Shuriken has some constructed possibilities or uh, is it just not going to make the grade it's another one of the, the cards like we said that technically in most circumstances it will require a little bit of setup so either getting the poison token on them or removing the abilities which are both things that both of the ninja decks will be able to do relatively frequently the problem is that you have to do that first so other than times where you'll run into like a kensai deck where you're actually bowing something considerably large with this bowing a, a smaller guy is okay bowing someone through their followers is okay the three honor loss is hefty for a ninja item so it's pretty much specific to the ninjas themselves yeah but yeah. it's solid uh neither it suffers because neither of the the ninja decks are really item based so you're not getting any reward for playing items in them 
so it has to kind of stand on its own in that end. And the other thing that kind of detracts from it is your true nature is kind of everywhere in the environment right now. <laughs> so playing an item that costs three gold is not the most efficient thing you can be doing. <laughs> let's see. So I well I, I made my my dig on the the E days. So let's move on to the the unicorn. So they, I guess one of the cards having mocked their honor theme. One of the two cards that seem to have a lot of potential in this is an honor card, uh, Utaku Zo Sia. If you have compassion, right? Oh, you're an honor deck, so you probably have compassion. You know, you have the ability to take a four personal honor personality and just repeatedly recur her, buy her, proclaim her, get her killed, bring her back. That's, that, that's, that's not a shabby bit of, of honor gain, and she, you know, if you have one of those late turns where you've got one or two provinces and you flip up no personalities, she could just come right back in. But with that said, she right, she's an honor card. I don't have much respect for Unicorn Honor Dex right now. Do you think she gets to accomplish anything? I think she gives them options, which is a nice thing to have. Because that, that four-personal honor means if you're playing a Unicorn Honor Deck, you're probably going to want to run her even if she didn't have an ability. Just because... You need ways to catch up to the honor decks that go before you, and four personal honor personalities are a great way to do that. So, that being said, you can find ways to kind of use her ability to your advantage. Like you said, like she'll be there if you're you get a bad flip and you don't have any personalities there. She's there to jump in the way of them attacking you, especially with Cav, because even if you're getting attacked by Cav, she can jump in the way too. So, there's a lot of things that she can do for you. The one downside is, of course, that she only has the cavalry trait, so she's not really going to work efficiently in the the EDA deck, like you said, or the the other magistrate deck that they have, just because she doesn't have that trait. But as a, a three of just her, I think you can afford the slots. So the the unicorn personality that I found the most appealing, even though I guess he still has a sensei coming, uh, is Shinjo uh, Sungmin, three force cav for six gold with reserve, with commander, and then battle to give at least a, a, a force two jab. Uh, reserve, I, I guess he doesn't have the reserve destined combo, but he, well, I mean, he, he's got one cheese, so he's got some vulnerabilities, but he seemed quite solid to me. Definitely, like, the unicorn personalities, they already have a lot of their, their cheap personality base kind of covered, because they have a lot of guys that are uh, below Sungman's gold cost that are, are relatively good personalities. So having him have reserve in addition to a real battle action is actually kind of important for the deck, just because you need things to do in battle, and him not only being able to come in, but also being able to immediately, your next action, use his ability or something like that. It's very solid for the deck, and the one she isn't as much of an issue at that point, unless they have some way to like duel him in battle, because a lot of the the, the stuff that cares about the one she is, is something that either happens during open phase or something like Tyrau who who targets them on assignment. So yeah, now you you do also have if you want the cavalry destined reserve, you've got the XP version of Sakiko along with a a melee three, but Man, I she's at that point getting the point three fours for ten gold. That I mean she was never force efficient, but that that's a lot. Do you think that's still gonna be worth it? 
It's it's tough to say just because, like I said, three force is not that much for ten gold. Like you do get a card, you do have the ability to reserve her in, and she does have a kill action. So you're definitely getting bang for your buck. But decks can only run so many expensive personalities, and I think she's she's solid. She has the uh, magistrate trait too, so she can work in the, the magistrate deck if you really want to. Three personal honors, great, but she is expensive, and that is definitely a detriment to the overall usefulness of her outside of another deck where maybe she's the only expensive personality you have. Okay, uh, anything else you think is worth commenting on in our most of our unicorn friends? Uh, the biggest thing to me is really they. Uh, one thing to pay attention to is they have three reserve personalities in the set. So that is definitely upping the amount of guys that they're going to be jumping into battle. So it's something to keep an eye on when you're playing against Unicorn decks, is that they just got a, a pretty big influx of reserve that's going to give them a lot more opportunity to jump guys into battle. Yeah, well, and the, the third one, Batar, also has a kill action, which, if you reserved him, doesn't bow him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a... Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's We're back to that... Okay, it's a range two. Not... not There's... Right, range three, much more exciting than a range mm-hmm. two. Yep, if only we had just talked about a guy that had a force bundle to set that up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Let's see. There's a there's a few thematic things I've I've skipped over. Now we've we've talked. There are several commander set themes. This is one of them. There are there's definitely seems like a lot of cavalry followers in this, presumably because there's a unicorn commander theme. But there's also a couple of I call them fear plus strategy cards. For commanders and followers, inexorable advance, intimidation tactic. Do you think there's anything in particular out of that that suite? Those those followers that some of the commanders got, or or those couple of strategies that is going to be a particular zinger for them. I think as the commander decks start to gain popularity, intimidation tactic is actually going to be pretty important for them because open bow is in a lot of different environments, very strong, especially if it can actually just flat-out kill followers, too. So if the environment shifts to more follower-based, or there's a lot of guys with open actions that you want to be able to bow out, prevent them from defending, it's it's a strong card kind of in the abstract, so I can see that seeing some play. Inexorable Advance, it negates their straightening. It's relatively solid. It's still just a fear action, though, so if that's what you're looking for, it's yeah. good, but I, I think definitely uh, the Intimidation Tactic is the stronger of the two. Yeah. While we're blowing up attachments, uh, Duelists did get Sundered Blade. That seemed like it had some potential. Some of those guys can, can get solid Chi, and Chi is generally on the personalities cheaper than fours, so you, know, you can have a guy with four Chi you know, shred an attachment, and hey, you always get to, you know, to bow something. It only hits attachments, but I hear those are pretty prevalent. Yeah, and especially the the larger attachment builds that are kind of going around now. That if you you have a high enough force duelist, just being able to wipe out their like eight or higher gold follower is a huge benefit of gold cost. So I I can see that definitely being something that as the duelist decks improve uh, sees a lot of play. Even if you only have three force, a lot of attachments, you might be paying six gold for a three force attachment, depending. 
if you have four chief, you might be, be able to hit an eight gold attachment. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. Uh, the other one that I had tagged as theme specific, I guess this would be crane or dragon since it's courtiers and honor is secret alliances. It's sort of delayed card draw and a little bit of honor gain, and then you have the ability to use it repeatedly. Yeah, it uh, doesn't really work in the the Dishonor Courtier decks, which is unfortunate, but that that type of ability, um, especially something that is potentially reusable, is is something that can... Uh, another one of the kind of actually compassionate effects of when you're getting behind a little bit, when you're throwing guys in the way, being able to replace your hand and draw into the rest of those honor actions, honor gaining actions, should I say, is kind of what you're looking for in the deck. So you're not technically gaining honor off of this card until the guy dies, but it's gaining you honor, the cards you're drawing are hopefully gaining you honor, so it should snowball into a quicker honor gain for you. Okay, so that was everything. I've got some other random things to to mention, but did you, within the realm of, let, let me let me pass it to you, within the realm of the theme-specific stuff or anything else, what other cards do you think are, are worth hi- highlighting out of Thunderous Acclaim? I guess technically this falls under the, the Shigenja themes, but one of the big cards that they got out of the set is a Breed Apart, which is uh, a Kiho that lets you either straighten your Monk of Shigenja or negate his current force bonuses or pen, uh, penalties. And it also can let you bow a Shadowlands card without attachments, too. So this plays a big role in the Shigenja decks going forward, because the two of the biggest things that hurt you in uh, the the larger like kind of tower unit Shigenja decks are standing fast to bow your big unit and overwhelming offense to give your your big unit a huge force penalty to bring them into range of your opponent's actions and this card can deal with both of those. It also has the added effect of if your opponent didn't protect his Shiho, you can bow his Shiho before he can completely remove all of your awesome spells off of your Shigenja. <laughs> so I see this being a, a big part of the Shigenja decks as they uh, take a a larger place in the metagame, just because it is so versatile, and it affects the the things that you want to affect in that deck. Okay, let's see. There are only three events, so Coronation Festival seemed like the one of those that was most likely to matter, just because that potentially can be a lot of Dynasty cycling. My guess would be that I don't know that any of them are going to get in there, but... Coronation Festival does at least have the nice thing of it's kind of the the opposite of the the compassion thing we talked about earlier, where you can trigger Coronation Festival on your open phase, attack in and actually take out a province and still have it work during your dynasty phase. Yeah. So it definitely has some play to it on that end. Uh, I don't know which decks are going to want to run this because again, like we said earlier, it's it's tough to find spots for events. But Coronation Festival definitely is up there, and A Vision Imparted, which is another one of the events, definitely also has some potential because it's, it lets you cycle enough to see the cards that you want to see. Uh, a lot of it, both of these cards are seeing play in the, the Conspiracy decks uh-huh. that recently got, got, an um, errata. <laughs> got, got an errata, just because they, they added a level of consist- consistency and dynasty flow that the deck didn't have previously that began to cause issues. So if if that deck can take advantage of these two, I'm sure that there's other decks out there that can uh, take advantage of that type of dynasty cycle. 
within the context of the Ashigaru, we talked about the the farm holding scheme. The other holding scheme in this set is the the barracks scheme. A good chunk of that is really only useful if you're playing uh, commanders and followers. And actually, the ones that are commanders and followers only, combat drill field and officers lodge, seemed to me like the ones with the most potential force pump for your followers off the drill field, extra gold for attachments, possibly off of officers lodge. How do you think that holding theme is going to play out? I think if you can take advantage of the the actions on the ones you just named, it might be worth it, just because if you're running enough holdings to make Mess Hall worth it for you, it can potentially be that holding that you need to allow you to attach the bigger followers and things like that. Because a, a lot of the time with the commander decks, uh, and you'll see this with a lot of what the Sheikah deck did, you just don't have a lot of time to attach your followers against certain decks, so you're kind of pushed into running cheaper ones that are like the the two gold, three gold, the four gold ones, just because you're spending so much gold on other things, you're buying personalities early, that you don't have the time to really play big attachments. So the, the standing fast decks now, on the other hand, are playing the larger ones, so you can build up your gold scheme to take advantage of the barracks holdings, and then have mess hall, which can potentially get to be a, a very efficient gold holding to allow you to buy those more expensive ones. So I think since there's so many decks out there that are kind of being pushed in that direction anyway, that it's it worth at least a shot to try out the barracks theme, because uh, a lot of the time you're just running your holdings for efficiency's sake right now, and mm-hmm. being able to slot in ones that actually give you actions uh, might be very beneficial. Another, I guess the last holding that I, since I guess most of the holdings these days get, get taken up by the the two themes, but this set also has hasty defenses. Maybe I should have just slotted this in with the scorpion cards. Uh, right, so this is, this is terrible if you're not going second all the time, so but just accumulating province strength from passive province strength boots from holdings has been a successful tactic for defensive decks in the past. Do you think hasty defenses is, is something that it could be worth something like a Scorpion Dishonor deck including in their arsenal? I think so. I know some of them are actually running Merchant Atoll, which is... Always on, obviously, but it's a much less efficient gold holding for what they're trying to do. So the last thing you want to do is spend six gold on something unless unless it's something like Slander or something like that. But having that blanket plus one province strength is actually very valuable, especially given you're going second already anyway, and your your province strength just has has the inerrant boost to begin with. So that it pushes it over the top to the point where it makes it a lot harder for your opponent to split. And if you're like a defensive deck running encircled terrain or something like that, that's exactly the circumstance that you want your opponent in. Because if they're only swinging for one and you have an encircled and they have no way to deal with it, then you're in very good shape to be able to to close out that game. I have one follower and one item left to touch on. I guess you may actually be a a, a terrible person to talk about Legion of the Ninth Kami because most of it's forward-looking things that you wouldn't be allowed to say anyway, whereas somebody else might just be able to speculate for the heck of it. So, right, it's... Three for three, so solid force to gold. 
there's an expectation of an undead sensei coming up. His interrupt could be very nice for that sort of sensei. And, you know, it's talking about, effectively talking about the possibility of, of Fu Lang himself doing something. Is there anything you can actually say about this card? <laughs> um, it's very solid. It is good for its cost, and it hints at stuff that could or could not happen. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, um, I will say that there's a lot of setup in this set in previous sets for things that we're doing looking forward, uh, especially given uh, the storyline of Onyx and everything coming out. So I won't say that there's going to be an Undead Sensei coming up or anything like that, but we're paying a lot more attention to seeding in themes that are coming up in the future. So something like this, maybe it is the sign, potentially, that we'll do an Undead Sensei, but a lot of it is just it's a, a kind of a, a general decent card. It's undead if it's an undead theme, and it's uh, got some interesting hints at some potential story stuff. Okay, well, that was I said that was the one follower that I wanted to mention. I guess do you have any any other follower that we haven't talked about? You wanted to single out for interest? We talked about Razor Fang earlier. It's definitely good for the commander theme. It might actually uh, show up outside of the uh, the line commander theme just because it is so efficient. Getting a melee three is something that I know for about. Uh, range 3 for the uh, expert archers, but you paid 4 gold for it and it had a drawback on it. And now this is 2 force for a melee 3 that only costs you 3 gold, and it also has the potential to not actually bow for it. So... Yes. If if this thing does not bow for that melee 3, that's amazing. Yes. Yes. So so it's got a lot of potential just to be uh, on the higher end of just followers in general, let alone in the Lion Commander deck. Yeah. On weapons, there's there's a lot of weapons that seem okay. The sort of places where we've come to expect them to be, you know, something costs six or seven, it has three force, it has some sort of ability, or it has high chi, or or whatever. We've got so there's cards like Flawless Naganata and, and Master Bowman's Yumi that do things like that. But uh, the card that felt like it got the most buzz up front was Matched Dice Show. You know, if you are going second, you've lost a province, you have compassion, it's now plus three, plus one, four, three, or I guess the dream notion that people have of just being able to slap two of them on the same guy and and have plus six, plus two. And I don't think that's really going to come up, but do you think Match Daisho will live up to the hype? It's interesting, because like you said, it it's another one of the cards that requires a bit of setup or other things to happen in the game in order to get its full potential. If you're trying to play it in like a dueling deck where you actually care about the chi, it's not really that efficient just because giving zero chi to start off with isn't really what you're looking for in an attachment in that type of deck. So you're kind of looking more towards a, a more military Kensai deck. And I think at this point, you want either ones that have a, the force right away or ones that give you actions. So, I mean, it's potential there. It definitely, if you can pull off the compassion and not put yourself too far behind, it seems like it could be playable and worth it, but the circumstances where that happens might make it so you're kind of iffy enough that it's not worth the inclusion. Any other items that you 
think are, are particularly worth highlighting for their possible tournament impact? On a personal note, uh, I really like Swordcatcher, mainly because I had a bit of involvement in the design, which is more of a, a challenge of how do we get more peasant weapons out there without having the slots for them in the set. So being able to pair them up on your guy is kind of an interesting thing. It it fits in with uh, the Mentis Kensai theme with the peasant weapons. It's actually a pretty reasonable ability to have, too. So it's it's solid. It's what the deck wants, but um, it's not like a, uh, a gigantic kill action that a lot of people would want on an item. It's a very utility in the forcing your opponent to have to buy their attachment again is a pretty good ability. Yeah, not shabby. I don't know. Hmm. And now I'm, I'm sitting here looking at this and I'm wondering, so if there should be some sort of design guideline that peasant weapons shouldn't be rare. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's something I fought for because, uh, like I said, I have a pretty big hand in how draft plays out. And not in this set, but in later sets, you'll see the, the peasant weapons kind of come down in rarity just because there's so many like Mantis personalities that have abilities that key off of peasant weapons. And when you only can have a peasant weapon that's in rare, it, it doesn't really make those do anything in, in a draft format. So, so hints towards the future, you might see more low rarity ones. Yeah. <laughs> On the the spell front, we most most of the spells get caught in the in, in being theme specific because the usually the spells these days are keyed towards, or very often, right, they're keyed towards one of the elements and one of the specific things. Something that we haven't hit on, though, is the the air ones, and I guess that maybe there's something super unit to do with Air Shugenjo with stepping behind the tapestry, but the one that I had focused on more was Trick of Moon's Light. If you've got that Air Shugenjo, right, we've talked about Honor decks needing warm bodies sometimes. This, if you have it on an air Shugenja, right, it'll every every turn it'll give you a free warm body to stand out there, and that warm body is a Shugenja. If you have strategies that keyed off Shugenja, yep. So it it's a kind of weird card. It doesn't play out exactly how you wanted to because one of the weird things is it does have zero personal honor, and there's certain things I know that the Phoenix deck is playing that actually I think pure intent that actually cares about having personal honor in your guys or something like that in addition to the two honor gain. So it could fit a very specific archetype of the deck. And like you said, like, they kind of just want bodies, but Phoenix deck wants bodies that it knows it can kill so it can buy them back. So it yeah. might not be exactly what that version of the deck wants, but they could have a kind of a, a build around it as opposed to the exact version that's running now. Yeah. The final mess of, of card type we have left is strategies, always the most populated one, so I'll sort of, with accepting the choice, seems to be designed to be kind of a marquee card for the set, it's, right, it's about, it's specifically about, you know, whoever, brother number two accepting brother number one as emperor, unknown at the time you guys were making this, it's a tutor ability, it does cost two gold, and it does require you to discard a card, but we are now in an environment that has a couple of cards that come back for free, I thinking I was probably overreacting, but I first when I, I mean the first thing when I posted when I saw this was oh this one could be a mistake. I guess what do you think the peak is for the the possible power level of of the open tutoring of accepting the choice? It's it's definitely a very strong action. 
it's been in the environment for a while. Obviously, walking away is something that has been around for uh, the whole arc. Uh, there's a tactician one that lets you pull a card out. It's open to any deck, though, that wants to run it, which is where the big difference is, because it requires no setup at all. It rewards you if you want to to play things like Path of Wisdom that could come back. But as a card itself, it doesn't actually do anything. So you need other cards to fetch, and you need the time to be able to use this to fetch them. So it's something that is very strong. It allows your deck to be very consistent in comparison to what you normally would be, because you'll always have the action you want in that critical battle if you have this. But it is a definite cost of that discarding a card, because you're spending two cards to get one. It is whatever one you want, but it, it is a definite cost, and that, that does pull it down to the away from the sky's fallingness of the card to just be a very solid choice. An honored guest. People do like some out-of-clan guys. You get an extra personal honor even if you use it on your own guy. Possibility of actually getting something juicy if the one... And I still getting a juicy proclaim if you know, one expensive guy you get to buy this turn is is out of clan. I I, I mean, there's it's not a big deal, but do you think it'll? Do you think this has any ability to to slot in something with honored sensei shenanigans? Yeah, I'm not sure because a lot of the time your honored sensei is generally enough, but uh, it could fit into that same type of honor deck just as if you're not planning on proclaiming your actual personalities, being able to proclaim your unaligned ones is nice, especially if you're running the full suite of the, the six uh, different Atomos that you can run. So it, it's got its own possibilities, and it, the, the fact that it's got Karmic is also a, a big upside to it, too, because in the circumstances where you do want an actual real card in that slot and you don't need to take advantage of the proclaim or the extra plus one personal honor, it's fine. But I think it's it might just not be worth it over other cards that you, you're probably fighting to find slots for the deck anyway. I guess my next one is is another possibly just marginal one, and that is not the end, which reminds me a bit of another card that, that did get a very similar card that got a very limited, narrow bit of play, Sticks and Stones. So, And that one was ranged one attack if it destroys... Something draw a card. If it destroys a follower, you're going to take additional battle action. This one doesn't have the possibility of getting you additional battle action, but it's karmic. But you know, if you against defensive decks, there are going to be guys that can be killed by a ranged one. If you've got force jab, there are going to be guys that can be killed by a ranged one. Ah. But still, it's only a ranged one. Do you think the meta might end up in a place where you'd want to? To be popping guys with range ones to in hopes of drawing cards. It's a possibility. Like I said, if you're running a lot of force penalties, having an extra topper of a kill action out of your hand is nice. I know some decks kind of run unholy strike just for that purpose of just having a kill action that your opponent doesn't see coming. Range one, like I said, it, it's it's tough because there's so few things that it hits without setup. That, okay, yeah, you can kill a Zero Force Courtier or whatever, or maybe pick off a, a small, like, token follower or something like that. But no one's really running the, the token follower stuff right now. A lot of the followers that you see running are, like, 2 force. Most of the personalities are in the 3 to 4 range. So it, it's it's tough to see this actually finding a home somewhere. But, again, if, if you are a deck that has a significant number of force penalties and not as 
much kill as you'd want, this can kind of fill in that spot. Well, I have four left on my list, but let's see if you can, uh, maybe you'll just pick some of them off. So are there any other other strategies that, you know, you think are a relatively big deal that are something that's going to make a difference in tournaments? One of the things that might help Lion kind of get out of the the lower tier, uh, like we're talking about, is Unforgivable. It can't be used in a lot of the the RNI decks that are where you're seeing a lot of the tactician stuff right now, but the the overall power level of the tactician cards is really up there. Like I said, Death of the Winds, like I was talking about earlier, letting you you fetch your cards. Unforgivable now, letting you get reuses of actions. Yeah, I think it's inspired leadership, the one that lets you copy an action. Like that sort of stuff is, is very powerful, and has always been there for Lion. And that's one of the things, like what I was saying with Kano, having another good tactician is helpful. They just need the the cards to be able to fill out that deck to to bring it up to that higher tier. And something like Unforgivable is something that could potentially put them there. Yeah, yeah, that could be a, a lot of force here with the options and still discipline it back. That seemed to be a there's a mini theme in there. There's I don't know three three or four cards maybe that have something like this where. You play your card, and then it enables you to take two additional actions, but it's very restrictive in what you can do with those, like mm-hmm. not jacking your opponent's cards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, it's powerful effect, like when we are talking about earlier with the double naval. Anytime you can break the tempo of your opponent and do a couple things in a row that maybe they weren't prepared for, it's going to improve your chances of victory like, exponentially. And... Cards that enable you to do that uh, are are things that in the past have been on the the above the curve scale a lot in L5R. So anytime you have that sort of effect, it's something worth paying attention to. Yeah. So speaking of which, you guys are going to reprint Cold Hand Stone Heart, right? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> if uh, Dragon continues to be as low as they are, maybe that's the the, the extent we need to go, right? <laughs> uh, yes, but. First, you'd have to print more monks that I actually want to put in a deck. <laughs> well, you got one in this set. Said. Yeah, yeah. So, let's see. Uh, how about Onyx Ascendance? Destroy my guy. Destroy your guy. Hopefully, I'm set up to best you in gold cost. Maybe guys that, that created things and they came out. But then I right, I've I've killed your guy. I get another little chud out of it seems like I should be able to make a profitable trade with this. Yes? No? What do you think? Yeah, it, it's definitely feasible. Like, uh, <laughs> the, the, the funny thing that I thought of, like, the first thing that comes into my head when I'm, like, going through this card is out of Phoenix. Just because you're killing your own guy, you can go again back. And it's that type of effect that could make cards like this powerful. And also comboing it with something like Feign Death, for instance, where you can get the guy back. So, there's there's things you can do with this card to to make up for the destroy your target unbowed personality or follower. That, however, is a very steep cost for this type of effect. I mean, it's situational. It sometimes will be very good, but in other times you'll be sitting there against a, a guy, a, an opponent that has a, a bunch of enemy cards out there that have either high gold cost or are not worth killing or something like that, and this will just sit there being a card that doesn't actually help you win the battle. So 
that's that's the issue I see with it, which again is a pretty big issue. <laughs> but if you can find ways around that uh, destroy a guy cost, it actually can be pretty powerful. Uh, so yeah, if uh, if it didn't have that lose two honor clause, probably be much more appealing to Phoenix. Well, yeah, I mean it's not like Nexus of Lies is in almost every military deck or anything like that. So yeah, that's uh, it's efficient. It's efficient for. Yep. Four for four is uh, extremely good. Yes. You could just make a blank four for four with absolutely no abilities or bonuses whatsoever, and it would still be quite good, I think. Indeed it would. But hey, and we, but we, now, we now know that Productive Mine is coming back next year. Yes. So you go, get, go back and get those from your I- I- Ivory Edition. Or if you're playing extended, you already have them still. Oh yes, yes. Well, if you, if you don't already have them, I yeah, I still have mine. I don't get rid of that. Yeah, so we'll you'll have Nexus in that the quietly MRP to Nexus of Lies in 20 festivals. You can blame that one on me because it was being a real pain in draft. So it didn't really <laughs> change the functionality of the card that much. So we just went ahead and did it just because it didn't really make much sense to it for it to punish Spider anyway. I'm actually glad I randomly mentioned that now because I was kind of curious when I saw that. Like, well, it doesn't mm-hmm. affect Spider, but the, the Spider don't lose honor from it anyway. They have a, yeah. I mean, they have a starting honor of zero or maybe one. Like, I guess it hoses Susumu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was something we picked up actually as we were testing this set in conjunction with the, the Ivory cards because, uh, like, we were testing out variations of the different personalities with honor losses and things like that for spider and you could only buy like one or two of your guys in a, a spider deck against the player with uh nexus of lies out and you were just losing four honor pop and it was just like uh making you make really bad decisions when you're actually doing the drafting because it means you can't play with any of like the shadowlands followers you can't play with a lot of the personalities you want to play with so it's just like eh, just just fix the card so that's not an issue okay the table is yours, Mr. Medico. Okay. Actually, I'm going to bring up two cards kind of that do similar things. Sure. Dissension and Command and The Price of Shame. They're both minus three force penalties. So they're they're solid. They're, they're average for what you want. But they both kind of fill pretty different roles. Dissension and Command, I've actually seen run in a couple um, actual like Scorpion and other defensive decks just because the minus three force doesn't go away when the terrain's destroyed, because that's part of the action of playing the terrain. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of sits there in the way of your um, opponent's terrains and things like that. So it's just kind of there as a terrain for you, and if they get rid of it and destroy it with their own terrain, that that minus three force doesn't go away. So it gives you the option of like clearing out their like contentious terrain or something like that without actually losing the tempo of not having your terrain do something. And Price of Shane on a similar end, we may remember, Chris and I, that we, we both played when uh, a better version of this card was legal <laughs> that uh, lets you hit multiple targets. But uh, the Price of Shame is another one of those dishonor them while still doing something else things mm-hmm. that is kind of important to like battle-based dishonor decks. So a lot of the dishonor that we've seen thus far has been a lot of oh, I dishonor your guy in the, the open phase, and then once we get into battle, I'm not really doing too much to to dishonor the guys that are there. I'm just kind of punishing the ones that are already dishonored getting in. So this is a, a way to kind of change that a little bit. 
And again, minus three force is kind of the baseline for what you want, so uh, having that additional dishonoring ability is kind of nice. Well, yeah, P- Price of Shame was was definitely one of the ones I had. So my my last two are both jewel event cards. So Ruby Ascendance, it's got courage, but I don't care. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, right, it's something. But mostly I, I look at this and it's, it's got a different set of parameters than something like Breaking the Rhythm, but another kind of generic, I can, I can stop your guy that you're trying to force pump to take over my province. I can get rid of, you know, your penalties on my guy. I can get rid of either direction of, of province strike bonuses. Just a, a lot of utility in there that Seems like it could uh, get this one into tournament decks. Yeah, exactly. Like these type of effects are important, especially in like the current environment of needing to have ways to deal with the proliferation of like force penalties and things like that. And there's a, a couple different ways to do it. And now you have the choice between a couple different utility cards of going in certain directions. Uh, whether you you want the ability to stop people from messing with your provinces or stop them from bumping theirs or something like, uh, I believe it's Courage Beyond Questions, the the other force penalty negation card, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, that one's not bad. Yeah, so so that's they're, they're kind of like fighting for the, the same slot, and it really just depends on the metagame of which one you think is going to serve the better role. Your turn? Unwanted Tutelage is another card that I kind of had pegged out. Just as Unholy Strike copies four to six, if you're really looking for that sort of thing. Uh-huh. The Honor Loss, like we said, it's it's kind of, a lot of the time it won't matter that much, but again, Nexus is very prevalent, so it, it it's it's tough to just have those lose two Honor cards in your deck when you know you're going to be losing a lot more than that in certain circumstances. So it's something to be aware that it's out there. If there's a deck that, that does need those extra copies, then it, it's something that they can use. Yeah, if if unholy was not already there to give, com, you know, pseudo combined attacks out of the hand, this mm-hmm. seems like it would be more appealing. Yeah, I mean, I guess if mantis decks or other decks with range attacks kind of don't want to run way the mantis and kind of want to consolidate slots, I guess it gives them that option because the, the the battle straighten is is never a bad thing. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Another card that got a lot of. Chatter, and I'm not sure, but on this one, but I'm not sure how well it actually would end up working out. Turquoise adjunct, open permanently give your personality the ability to discard a card to produce gold equal to its focus value. You can also invest it if you're crane to to get the card back immediately. Although then you're coughing up two gold, so it, it either costs you two gold up front or a card up front for the ability to turn cards into gold. Now, there have certainly been times when this is quite good, and we do have, as we've discussed, right, we we have Path of Wisdom that comes back. I Secret Alliances, since you have to pay for, to make it come back, not so great. But uh, anytime you have the ability to just generate extra gold, you've got some potential. How is Turquoise Adjunct going to work out, you think? I think you're right on the button with it. It's got potential. If you can Construct your decks in a way such as that you're taking advantage of the fact that this is gold coming out of your um, personalities as opposed to just being holdings. 
it can definitely have some value. Like the Path of Wisdom thing still works. Like it's still gonna give you that that extra gold there. It's it's a lot of extra investment to get the full potential out of this card. But if you can find the way to to make it worth it for your deck, I think it's a, an avenue worth worth approaching. That was the last of the specific ones that I wanted to highlight. So I'm gonna turn it over to you. And and remember. If there's anything that's good that you don't mention, people will hold it against you as a player. But also, I'm about to fall asleep. So, you know, balance that. <laughs> yep, I think, uh, I think we about covered it. <laughs> a lot of the, the last couple cards are just kind of generic effects that uh, you would think you'd see in a lot of sets that are kind of in there a lot of the times for draft specifically, or if there's a very specific reason to have them in, in, in your deck for the metagame, then they're out there, but... I think yeah. we, we covered a good portion of uh, of what's out there in the set. Yeah, that things like be silent. I'm like, well, that's really good in draft. I guess it could come up in constructed, but probably not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or something like unseemly brawl, which in draft is definitely a powerhouse, but in constructed, eh, it's a force bonus. <laughs> yeah, it's a force bonus. There's a force penalty. Okay, we've got this. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the L5R specific podcast feed or the overall deluxe podcast feed there, or you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. If you visit us on one of those services, we always appreciate it if you leave a review or rating. That helps other people discover the show. You can find us on Facebook at Strange Assembly or follow us at Strange Assembly on Twitter. You can also contact me directly. I'm Chris at StrangeAssembly.com. I always like to hear from our listeners and readers. But until then, for... Chris Medico, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.